Breakout, a Stranger Than Fiction short story, narrated by the author. Chapter 1. You can be anything you want to be, my grandfather once said to me. Really? Can I, grandfather? Can I be better than Icarus who too dared to fly so close to the sun as I envisioned myself doing? Perfectly crafted catchphrases for the perfectly ignorant. That's who those catchphrases are for. The meekly ignorant who think that sheepish obedient behavior will bring them riches like they see displayed on their magic enslavement screens presented from their PDA devices. Everyone's face is locked in as if they had demon claws vice-gripping their faces attempting to pull them into the insidious world of mass distraction. Even though I am still very young, a genius, but young, I am terrified of the accepted world around me. This world was meant to be interacted with and enjoyed using the tools of creation to craft and experience beauty. That is why I took it upon myself to create the Data Monster. The Data Monster is an invisible electromagnetic force that gets started with the splitting of muons that then tumble creating a domino cascading effect that sends out carrier wave signals that latch onto every person's phone making the phones inoperable. Some would call me a digital terrorist. I would call myself a liberator of human consciousness from the shackles of technocracy. A technocracy that uses psychologically addictive gambling tools of addiction like the ones they use feeder meter slot machines that suck the wealth right out of you while giving you lung cancer with the hotbox smoke trap casinos. I created this data monster at the age of 15 when I discovered that muons could have an entangling tumble effect if they were split with enough force and energy during my summer internship at UCLA. Remarkable. I told no one of my discovery. I made sure to scuttle the experiment, only memorizing the quantized formula to start the chain effect into action. Luckily, the day I discovered the groundbreaking process of splitting muons, they were trapped harmlessly inside the scientific vacuum I was using for the experiment. They simply hit a quantum wall and evaporated. Had they been outside of the vacuum, they would have tumbled and found their way, not stopping until every electronic device had been fried and fizzling to permanent non-working order. This is particularly dangerous because nuclear power plants are reliant on the types of electronics this tumbling split muon effect would have. I had to create a targeted way to focus only on PDA phone device carrier signals that downloaded themselves into the phones themselves when they talked back and forth to the various cell phone towers. The cell phone towers were going to be my delivery device. The phones were the target, the liberation of humanity, the effect. Things radically changed for me when I realized I wasn't an American. Some might say this is an aberrational fantasy, but I swear to you it is real. I don't think I'm an American. I don't like Americans. I don't talk like an American. I don't even look like an American. I may sound like an American, but I am not an American. You say I am deluding myself. I say I have liberated myself. There is nothing worse than to be told what you are from birth. To be made the subject of someone else's grand lie that says, this is all there is. This is who you are. Now join me in the good fight or else. Peace can only be found through the temporal evisceration of self. To find one's own immortal soul is to discover that which lies beneath the horror mask of skin. 
I had to face my own death when I found out I had two premature gray hairs on the fleshy sack of my testicles that chromosomes chose for me to have. I had no idea how tired I was of my own body until that fateful discovery. Comical as it may seem, gray hair for me represents death, the decay, the dying of self, the decline into the hellscape of mortality. My ultimate treasure is my ultimate curse, life. I intended to liberate humanity by destroying their PDA devices. Instead, I radically disrupted and changed the human evolutionary timescale. This is my story of how forced cosmic copulation became the transmutation of all living beings. Below is the accounting of one of the many lives affected by my fateful experiment. This is without a doubt the most grotesquely disconnected generation of people I have ever had the displeasure of witnessing. Tom Watkins said to himself as he looked over the shoulder of his daughter playing TikTok videos in an endless stream of dulled humanity. Oh, Daddy, you're so old! Lacey screamed to her father as he tried to take her PDA phone device away from his nine-year-old daughter. How are you supposed to know anything about anyone if you don't have a physical conversation with them? Tom asked, frowning at his bright-eyed girl. Daddy, aren't you supposed to have a physical soon? Mom says you need to get healthy. What does she mean by that? Lacey asks her father, trying to be adult-like. <laughs> That's none of your business, little one. Tom says, smiling, sitting on the couch next to his favorite and only daughter. Face it, Daddy-o, you are old. This generation has passed you by. The way of the old is gone. This is the way of the new. Tom is struck by how mature his little Lacey Watkins sounds. Her hair has grown long and is darker brown now. Her stubby appearance has elongated into a growth spurt of budding ideas that again and again makes him question whether she is really his daughter. But of course you are my daughter, Tom says enthusiastically as he pinches her cheeks. God, this little one sure made Samantha's nipples tough. So much so, my own wife doesn't even let me suckle them during the now daring and unpredictable act of coitus, the unexpected trade-off to having a child. An acceptable trade-off for sharing this world with such a bright, boundless being. A marriage far, far on the edge of the rocks. Tom thinks as he sadly watches his daughter return back to her TikTok timeline on her PDA device phone. Tom grabs the phone out of Lacey's little hands. Time for us to go somewhere outside. Lacey immediately kicks out her hands and feet in violent protest. God damn it, I hate going outside, she yells. Tom is shocked by his daughter's use of language and doesn't rightly know how to respond other than handing her PDA device back to her. This return of favor surprises little Lacey as she looks up at the face of her father, which looks sad. She takes a moment to look at her phone and then back to her father, who looks like he could actually be on the brink of tears. Lacey looks at her phone like it is a bad thing now. Well, I don't want you to feel sad, Daddy, Lacey says with innocent regret for her outburst. If you want to go to the park or for some ice cream, we can, Lacey says, appeasing her father's wishes to have a good day outside in the world. God damn it, I don't want to do the normal routine shit, Tom screams in an outburst, scaring his daughter and even himself. This immediately shocks Lacey into frightened, sobbing tears. Well, then I won't go. I won't go. Go, goddamn you! She yells through her tears, burying her face into the soft cushion of the couch they are both sitting on. Stop saying goddamn! That is not a nice word for little girls! Lacey turns to her father in rage now. You always tell me to grow up! And when I do using big girl words, you yell at me! Fuck you! Lacey puts her middle finger right into the face of her shocked father who doesn't respond harshly. 
He has stopped thinking of all the times he had in fact commanded his daughter to be more grown up. With his wife on the lamb, with another man's vision of her work and career, he hadn't had the time to emotionally reflect on the kind of father he was becoming for his little Lacey. Well, aren't you fiercely rebellious today, little one? They both look at each other suspiciously. Lacey's frown begins to break and give way to an overwhelming smile. She jumps up, throwing her little arms around her father's tough neck. I'm sorry, Daddy. Please forgive me. Tom play acts like he isn't sure. Oh, come on, Dad. Don't hate me. Tom smiles and gives his daughter a big peck on the cheek. Tell you what, I know just the sport activity we can try out together. Tom says, brightening his mood. What? Lacey asks, hoping it still involves ice cream somehow. Jiu-jitsu, Tom says, expecting full reciprocity from his little bundle of joy. Lacey's eyes squint, and then her face turns quickly back to a frown. Jiu-jitsu? What the hell is that? Sounds like a medical procedure. Lacey says, looking for the PDA device which Tom has sneakily made disappear into the seat cushion he is residing on. No, silly. It's that crazy pretzel martial art where you fold clothes with people inside them still. Lacey develops a shocked and befuddled look of confusion and begins to laugh. Oh, Dad, that sounds silly. Tom laughs with his daughter, poking at her, trying to make her giggle with his tickles. Don't you want to be able to beat up those bully boys at school? Tom asks, laughing more. Lacey giggles into a laugh fest. Well, of course I do. Let's go. Everything is perfect now. Suddenly, Tom wakes up from his dream, looking over from lying on his couch at his daughter who is scrolling through TikTok videos, which makes him severely depressed. Tom, the only way to counter despair is to take action. He remembers his father saying to him once when he didn't get his play accepted by the guild when he was 16. Tom shoots up off the couch and snatches Lacey's phone out of her hand. Come on, we're going someplace fun. Someplace dangerous today. Lacey doesn't even have time to protest as her father has already pulled her up, grabbing his keys off of the key hook next to the cartoon picture of the Hawaiian hula hoop girl. They are out the door and into the car, pulling out of the driveway, headed toward their next train station of destiny. Tom, not wanting to fight with his daughter, turns on the local baseball game that is being broadcast on the AM radio station out of the local university at UCLA. Tom is a Luddite. He hates technology. Ever since he was little, he had always been reticent to accept new technologies out of fear that the devices would somehow steal his soul. He even wrote a school paper in middle school that asked, what kind of a world do we want to live in if we don't even care to speak to each other in person anymore? He had gotten a sympathetic B- for the work which made him just shy of getting his $500 bonus that year for a straight-A report card. Dad, you failed me, he constantly thinks to himself. The fear of failure as a father to his little Lacey is always at the forefront of his mind, and it makes him sick with envy looking at the other fathers who seem to be doing a much better job with their own little ones. Driving in the car headed down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, Tom can already see that his daughter is very disappointed in their day so far. The traffic on this Saturday morning is especially backed up and hot due to the July-summer time rush to get to the beach. Lacey keeps looking in the glove compartment and under her her seat for her phone. Dad, I can't find the phone anywhere. You said it was here. Tom, of course, had lied to his daughter. Anything to keep his daughter active looking for the ghost of her phone until they had safely arrived at their intended destination, which was Sport Decker's Jiu-Jitsu Academy, a newly minted martial arts gym parodied in the latest Billy Joel summer comedy effort that was failing miserably at the summer box office. A summer comedy movie flop Tom spent 10 years of his life fighting to get made. Tom feels like he is a man with no future. 
The only good thing he has left now is his daughter Lacey, and he's not going to waste any more goddamn time to see if he's fucked her up or not with bad parenting. Well, that's an ill thing to say, Tom. His wife had said before she got on the American Airlines flight 3456 on her way to London to start her new career as a CPA accountant for a foreign Chinese law firm. Life was escaping, Tom, and right there on Sunset Boulevard next to the Guitar Center, he realized that his life had fallen apart, and he was just realizing it. How quickly life can sneak up on you, he thought to himself as he wanted to cry. The lease on his BMW was more than the rent of his shitty apartment. That should tell you what kind of man Tom is. I'm never going to recover, he says under his breath as he looks with unsurprising horror at a bum popping a squat taking a shit in broad daylight on the sidewalk as people run by screaming at him. A woman carrying a Prada bag runs by holding her mouth as if she is about to vomit. Tom moves with the car, slow enough to see that she is spitting up puke through her fingers, and this makes him laugh. Daddy, what is that man doing on the sidewalk? Oh my God, is he making duty? Tom has to restrain himself from laughing, which makes his daughter concerned for him. Dad, what are you laughing at? She asks, shocked. Nothing. <laughs> Stop saying duty. It makes you look younger than you should be. This comment awkwardly silences his daughter. It was meant to distract her from him being a bad father by laughing at a circumstance he should not have been laughing at. You fucked up again, Tom. He suddenly hears his middle school coach yell at him in his mind. The same coach who called him a pussy for not wanting to climb a tree with a dinghy rope attached to his belt. The worst part of this moment is they are stopped in traffic next to the man that is now splattering the sidewalk with his unsolidified diarrhea excrement. Awkwardly, Tom stares at the back of his daughter's head as she sits in silent disgust, watching every formidable detail of the event taking place on the hellishly hot sidewalk just outside the car. Dad, is that that man's dinghy hanging down? Lacey asks to Tom's horror. Tom looks over to see that the displaced African is incredibly hung. Too hung. Morbidly hung. Even though he is in full squat, you can clearly see his penis touching the floor of the dirty, disgusting sidewalk. Okay. That's it. Shut your eyes, Tom yells, making his daughter wince as she can't take her eyes off of the shit-squatting horror show. Tom jerks the wheel of his car into the seemingly empty lane, accelerating only to be met by a gold Chrysler hitting his front left wheel, causing them to crash. Lacey's airbag deploys to her shocked amazement as Tom's head is hit by his driver's side window, shattering it, sending Tom into a coma-like daze. Slowly... Tom's eyes close, fading into blackness, even though he can still hear the screams of his daughter begging for someone to help and rescue him. Tom woke up in the UCLA intensive care unit completely unsure of himself and unaware that he had a daughter. Memories of who he was and where he was escaped him. He looked around with a throbbing headache and a seemingly bad temper that made him seethe with anger. Nothing made sense to him. The shapes... The odd feelings of hostility. Nothing. It was all a fantastic blur. A bright flashing alarm began to go off, raising his awareness to the fact that he was strapped into his ICU bed with medical restraints. Why would someone try and restrain me? Tom thought, as he didn't even recognize the voice that was narrating his thoughts inside of his head. Tom waited, expecting to see nurses come at him with crash cart paddles, telling him he was about to die. But no one came. 
It was hard to keep track of time. It seemed like an eternity before Tom noticed the big hand of the clock that had been on the 12 was now nearing close to the 7 of the clock face. Well, if this ain't the shittiest hospital I have ever been to. Have I ever been to a hospital? Tom thought slowly remembering that he remembered basic societal objects and places. He was able to identify he was in a hospital and in bad shape, but he still wasn't able to remember who he was. Tom waited until the big hand on the clock face passed 11 before he allowed himself to panic. Something is very wrong, Tom thought to himself as he slowly forced his head up to look at his body that was covered in thermal blankets. His wrists felt numb and raw with the restraint harnesses he was cinched to. A smell came from him that suggested he was dirty and had not been recently properly bathed, which drove his need for answers and concern further. To Tom's horror, he slowly begins to realize that he was hallucinating. He was not inside of the ICU wing that his mind had empathetically told him. He was, in fact, inside the morgue. An icy dagger of chill stabbed at his chest as he looked over to his left and right to see the still-lying white sheet-covered contours of dead bodies all around him. He was but one in a row of many. The delusion his mind had created for him gave way fully to the shock of reality. The reality being that he was dead. Was. Dead. Yes. Tom had been pronounced dead at the scene when his brain swelled inside his skull from the impact of the window hitting him. The shock of the incident had sent his daughter into seizures where she was now being treated. Tom, on the other hand, had been brought here, to the UCLA morgue where a pathologist was on his way to find Tom and perform the scheduled autopsy on him. Not that one was needed. The immediate cause of death could have been called by anyone had they seen him there sprawled out and shitting himself into a brain-splitting stupor. The only thing that remained from his former delusion was the sound of the ringing alarm with flashing strobing white light. Tom sits up. Yes, he physically sits up. Not as a ghost or a spook, but as Tom. A sight that would make anyone who had handled him scream with shock, sending them running shrieking down the hallway. Yes, Tom had been very much dead and was now alive. Even Tom is afraid of himself as he realizes the truthful predicament he is in. He can begin to feel himself. Before, it was all numb. There was no feeling. It was like his whole body had fallen asleep, like when your arm does when you lay on it for too long. He had been in the deep sleep of eternity, and he knows it. This frightens him. Why am I here? Who am I here? Wh who let me come back? Tom thinks as he pulls the white sheet off of him to reveal his ashy white naked body and toe tag hanging from his big toe on his left foot. The sight of the toe tag sends a cold shudder down his reanimating spine. This feeling I have is like coming back to life, like being reborn, only in reverse. The alarm, still ringing, begins to sour in Tom's ears. The flashing light is making him squint as he can feel the electronic signals from his brain becoming stronger, lighting up, firing again, as synapses do when you are alive. I shouldn't be alive, Tom thinks, and he really shouldn't be. But because of the little muon-splitting experiment up the road at the UCLA Physics Laboratory, he is. He is special. He is quantumly entangled to an event that right now, is wrecking havoc on the digital communications of the world, shutting down permanently the World Wide Web and Internet for good. Only Tom doesn't know any of this yet. 
As he sweeps his feet to the side of the cold steel slab table, placing his feet onto the cooler surface of the tiled floor below him, he goes to stand. When he stands, he hears the creaking sound of panicked tendons not quite ready to move in support of his limbs and torso, which makes him cry out in anguishing pain. Standing now and wincing in death-looming pain, Tom hobbles his way toward the large meat locker-looking door that has him locked in. He searches the door for the handle opening it, smelling fresh air that replaces the dead air he has been trapped in for who knows how long. As he makes his way, stumbling into the hallway, grabbing hold of the next wall, which is his standing refuge, Tom knows that the answers he is now searching for will place him on a journey that is truly stranger than fiction. One name. I can only think of one name. Who the hell is Lacey? Tom has no idea who Lacey is. That name is like a ball of string in his mind that is only getting larger and growing spikes in his brain that is slowly firing back up after he spontaneously awoke from death in the gallows of the UCLA medical morgue. Lacey. 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 No images spring into Tom's mind associating the name with a face. Tom, making his way slowly down the dark corridor, funnels himself toward the only elevator in the room which is still a long way away at the end of the hallway. There is an audible beep. The elevator dings, and then sparks fly out of the elevator as it appears to have malfunctioned. Adjacent to the elevator is a door. This door opens to reveal a short, stubby man in a wheelchair. He spins, looking at Tom, shocked, as if him being there is quite out of place. Possible, actually, my friend, Tom thinks. Hey, 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 who are you? How, how, how did you get to, to, to down here? The man stutters, obviously dealing with much more than the immobility of his legs. Tom goes to speak but realizes he can't open his mouth. He feels his jaw. He then pushes his fingers into his mouth, flapping his lips as he does. More surprised than disgusted, Tom feels the harsh stringy steel of wire. His jaw has been wired shut. Jesus! He seethes with spittle. A white paste is caked on his fingers. Tom looks up to hear the mechanical wheelchair coming for him. Hey, buddy, I'll ask again. Who are you? What are you doing? He... The disabled man stops dead in his tracks, halting the wheelchair and looking down at Tom's feet in horror. Tom glances down to see what the man is looking at. It is his toe tag. Tom forgot to remove it because he couldn't feel it. The feeling has still not fully returned to his limbs. Tom reaches down as best he can, falling to his butt with a grunt. He unwinds the aluminum spindle of wire to relieve the toe tag of its misguided duties, tossing it to the side with a faint echoing ping as the wire skirts the aluminum floor. Who the hell brought me back? Tom thinks again. Tom, still disoriented, looks up to see the man in the wheelchair, pasty white, and frozen in horror with his mouth agape. Tom goes to speak only to remember his jaw is wired shut. Tom points to his mouth and vocalizes, 
Word short as best he can without the ability to move his jaw and tongue properly. Tom goes to stand again, only this time he is stronger. The feeling in his arms and legs are making a comeback in a big way. He even begins to feel a stinging sickness in his belly just as he feels he is about to vomit. Tom closes his eyes to keep the vomiting thoughts at bay. Where would the vomit go? I could drown with my jaw shut. Tom stabilizes, looking directly at the disabled man in the wheelchair, who begins to shriek, turning his mechanical wheelchair 180 degrees around the opposite direction, hightailing it away from Tom, who he thinks is a ghost. He... Tom tries to yell. Uh, no, God! It's not possible! You were dead! You were dead! The disabled man screams from his fleeing wheelchair as it screeches, turning a sharp left into what can only be assumed to be his office. At least I cured him of his stutter. Fear cures the stutter. Tom thinks as he limps using the wall as his guide and crutch. The sounds of panic dialing can be heard from the disabled man's office. <laughs> Hello, anybody? Operator, help! Someone, please help! Why, why won't the phones work? Oh God, this is not, not, not happening. The disabled man screams in a feverish, high-pitched squeal. Tom finally makes it to the doorway, slunking, falling through the doorway, catching himself on the disabled man's desk. His wheelchair jerks back, slamming against the wall behind him, making a stack of binders and books fall on top of his head, scraping his bald head, creating a nasty laceration that immediately begins to bleed, pouring blood. Tom slams his fist against the wall, surprising the disabled man. Himself, most of all. Luckily, Tom couldn't feel his hand, otherwise he would feel the pain of a broken hand. The man in the wheelchair stops freaking out, putting up his hands, avoiding eye contact with Tom. Shaking now, Tom reaches for a pair of needle-nose pliers that have spilled out of a utility tool cup on the disabled man's desk. Instinctually, and without hesitation, Tom begins to grip the wire in his mouth, pulling it, making it dip outward. Sliding the needle-nose pliers through the wire loop protruding from his teeth, he twists and yanks the wire until it cuts. This loosens the binding anchors that are lining his gums, making it feel loose in his mouth. He feels around his mouth with his fingers poking and cutting his finger as he does, not noticing it even as the blood leaves a trail on the outside of his gums. The disabled man begins to hyperventilate as he glances at Tom, the man he had processed and labeled as deceased only three hours earlier. Tom pulls and yanks until the wires have been ripped from his gums. The separating buffer between his teeth is the last to go as he pulls the jaw-wiring apparatus from his teeth as his mouth pours copious amounts of viscous blood. The disabled man vomits on himself, spraying the stream at the feet of Tom, whose eyes have crossed and made him look dumb and confused. The disabled man huffed in his malfunctioning mechanical wheelchair as he attempts to push his joystick backwards to make the wheelchair evade the ghost he swears is in the room with him. Tom looks at the man and feels a rush of rage from the confusion he has been dealing with ever since he awoke on the death slab not more than 20 minutes earlier. 
Desperate to get away, the man in the wheelchair reaches for a broomstick and begins to swat at Tom, who doesn't even notice it until it thwacks him in the side of the jaw, sending a fresh spasm of intense pain, indicating his pain centers are firing up again. Tom slams his fist once more against the wall, making a loud banging thud, as if I am trying to force the feeling back in my body to start up like a bad radio signal TV with bad reception. Mister? I have had a hell of a time trying to come to terms with the past half hour, and your yelling is not making it any easier. Calm down. I am not going to hurt you. I am just as surprised to be here standing as you are seeing me walk around. You are safe. No harm will come to you. The man in the wheelchair begins to calm slightly. His breathing is still heavy and sobbing with tension as his chest heaves heavily up and down. Tom sits on the desk, collapsing on it really, waving back and forth as if he is still drunk, but really is not used to being back in his body that had been fully vacated just that morning. How do I know I died in the morning? Tom asks himself, perplexed by the certainty he has of this knowledge. Tom steadies himself on the desk and looks at the disabled man in the wheelchair who is still holding on passionately to his book of shocked horror. When did I come in? When was I pronounced dead? How did I die? Tom asks to no answer. The question lingers in the air for a while as Tom studies the disabled man whose green eyes dart glancing at an orange binder sprawled out on the floor between them. Tom stiffly bends down and picks up the heavy sprawl, placing the binder on the desk beside him with a thwacking slap. Fingering through the pages, Tom immediately finds a survey list of all incoming and exiting deceased. A list for cremations and a list for burials. Jesus! What's my name? Tom looks over to the man in the wheelchair. Hey, first, please tell me your name. I know you're afraid, but so am I. Please, let's make this a civilized and formal discussion about discovering just who I am and what the hell is going on here, Tom says, attempting to look relaxed and poised for discussion. For a long minute that felt like three, the disabled man finally speaks, pulling his hand from his mouth, releasing the small wad of fingers from its protecting action of his food gate. Witherton. Samuelson, the man says hoarsely and almost inaudibly. Tom lights up relieved. Good. Very nice to meet you, Witherton. Tom takes a breath of deep relief. Okay, Mr. Samuelson. W Witherton is just fine, thank you. Mr. Samuelson responds fastidiously. Witherton, sorry. What is my name? Witherton looks at Tom deeply as if he is looking for God somewhere inside the miracle man's face that is standing before him. Tom Spiegel, Witherton says with definite certainty, assurance that only a ripe and keen mind would provide. Tom's eyes search the floor below him. He can't remember who he is, even with that name. You don't remember? asks Witherton. Tom shakes his head no. Lacey? Who is Lacey? Tom asks, half expecting that name to be a made-up fantasy. Witherton stares at Tom for a long while. His face is somber and becomes drawn. Tom knows bad news is coming, but he doesn't know what it will mean to him. Whose name do you th 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 think that is, Tom? Witherton asks delicately. Tom searches his mind and emotions, really searching for the truth, but all that comes back in his mind's eye is a blank black slab of nothingness. 
I, I have no idea, Witherton, Tom says with grave desperation. Witherton takes a breath, closing his eyes as if readying himself for the reveal. Lacey was your daughter, Mr. Spiegel. She died on the way to the hospital after an airbag that had deployed snapped her neck, causing her to lose consciousness and slip away to God. Tom feels less shocked than he should at this news. Tom can't fully feel the effect of the moment because he honestly does not remember her. Witherton sits back in his wheelchair expecting some sort of emotional outburst like most people resort to from such terrible and tragic news. Where is her body? Can I see her? Witherton folds his hands on themselves into a triangle. Of course you can see her. She was laid out next to you in the morgue. Witherton laps his teeth, nervously pruning his own lips with tension. Tom, regaining more of his composure and a feeling that is prickling through his body, stumbles toward the door, catching himself as he does. Tom turns, looking at Witherton. Thank you, Witherton. I and you have more questions than answers. We will figure this out to- Daddy! A young girl's voice calls out from the hallway. Tom sees a shocked Witherton, wilting in his chair, literally pissing himself through his beige dress pants. That voice is where the morgue should be, Witherton whispers, shaking his head. Not one, but two ghosts now. But ghosts don't feel, Tom thinks. Slowly, Tom, not taking his eyes off of Witherton's, backs up resting his back on the corner of the exiting doorway into the hallway. As if seeking support for the moment he must now face, Tom slowly breaks his umbilical cord of psychic concentration, refocusing his attention on the hallway in front of him. Stepping out into the corridor, Tom turns to see Lacey, his daughter, limply shuffling toward him from the opposite direction where the morgue is. Tom stares at her as if he is studying a zombie coming towards him, only she is not the undead. She is the reanimated. The somehow reanimated body of his daughter who is discovering feeling just as he had when he had awoken for what remains to be unknown reasons. He can hear her attempting to cry, but can't seem to find the coordination yet to do so. Her state was more bilious than ever as she painfully slid one foot in front of the other, making squeaking skin scrapes against the surface of the cold linoleum that was warmer than she was no more than 40 minutes ago. Tom knows he should be agog to see the tiny human who is claimed by Witherton Samuelson to be his daughter, but he simply cannot find the feelings or memory of her. She obviously remembers me because she is crying out to him. M me. Tom stares at her for a long while, his mouth agape, studying the features of her. A window placard with hospital staff safety protocols is reflective enough for Tom to catch a glimpse of himself. He stares at himself as if looking at the reflection of a stranger. Nothing is familiar or apparent to him. Tom notices his hair is brown like hers. She even has eyes like him, but nothing. Not even deep within the furthest gallows of himself can he muster the treasure of light that it was to have known and seen the witnessing of her birth. There is just that now familiar blank slab of black impenetrable darkness. Tom hears the mechanical sound of Witherton Samuelson's electronic wheelchair sputtering forward making a squeak sound as the rubber tires resist the directed change. Witherton slowly appears in his wheelchair, slowly moving through his office room doorway, turning his chair right to see the back of Tom and the stumbling progress of his reanimated daughter Lacey. This has to b b b be an act of God, Tom hears Witherton stammer out of his shocked mouth. Or something else, Tom whispers. Daddy! Tom hears his daughter cry out to him once more through what sounds like clenched teeth. Tom moves himself, shuffling against the wall, finding his way toward Lacey. 
Her mouth didn't move, but I could still hear her calling out my name. Tom thinks as he moves to Lacey, catching her as she falls stiffly into his arms. She makes little sobs and grunting noises as if she is dealing with great discomfort. Tom turns her around in his arms so that her head faces the ceiling. He immediately notices that her mouth is bleeding as little blood trails trickle down the sides of her clenching mouth. He pushes his index finger into her mouth to feel the half-separated section of the jaw wiring mechanism that was meant to keep her mouth from opening during an open casket funeral. A deep, depraved, cold shudder chills his spine as he thinks of the image of he and his daughter laid out side by side next to each other, flower doilies and all, as their tearful eulogies are read by faceless family members he cannot, for the life of him, remember. Just hold on a second. I have to get some pliers to pull off the rest of the wiring. Hearing this makes Lacey cry out in protest with a muffled, No! Tom picks her up and carries her into Witherton's office, walking past Witherton, who is looking up at them like he is seeing the ghost of Jesus walk on water. He does love Jesus. Maybe he will have the answers. This is something supernatural. Though I am an atheist, there has to be something higher in power that has willed us back from death's embrace. Tom glances at the cross broken on the floor at his feet and quickly forgets Jesus looking at the destruction of the art piece as an omen. Tom places his daughter onto the desk, grabbing the needle nose pliers he had recently used on himself. Turning slowly with the pliers in hand, Tom discovers Lacey has passed out in anticipation to the expected shock of pain from the pliers. Oh, thank God, Tom gratefully thinks. Who knows what kind of damage I would do if she was struggling and awake. As delicately as he can, Tom one by one pulls at each string of aluminum wire that are adhered to her teeth. Pulling the last one that is stuck to one of her front baby teeth, Tom yanks at it, pulling the tooth with it. Tom freezes with horror. It's, it's okay. It's just a b b b baby tooth, Witherton stutters, surprising Tom, who hadn't noticed Witherton had moved in right behind him with his wheelchair. Tom suddenly remembers a flash of memory and light from his own childhood, where he had knocked out both of his front baby teeth prematurely when he had stumbled and fell against the metal faucet piping in his bathtub when he was six years old. He remembers his mother, who had white skin and black hair past her shoulders, pulled back in a ponytail running in to care for him as he cried. Yes, I remember, Tom exclaims, scaring Witherton, making him jump as if he were locked in a tight space with a wild and feral animal not quite knowing what it will do next. You remember your daughter, Lacey? Witherton asks, intensely curious. Tom looks at Lacey, whose eyes are closed and brow is sopping with sweat and dabs of blood. Tom's eyes find the backs of his hands that are slightly withered and soft. He balls them up, not recognizing them still. The memory leap from boyhood to adulthood as he is now is still blank with darkness. No, I just had a flash of memory remembering my mother when I had knocked out my front teeth in a bathtub. Tom consents Witherton smiling. Well, see, that's good. It's all starting to come back to you. I bet you'll remember Lacey in no time. Tom relaxes his stiff shoulders that still feel like they are asleep. The blood hasn't seeped back into the other areas of his body yet. Tom puts his hand on his chest and notices something is wrong. I don't have a fucking heartbeat, Tom thinks. Tom, suddenly frightened, grabs his chest, searching for the beat of his heart. There is none. What? Witherton asks, frightened and afraid, not knowing what to do. He readies his escape by putting his hand on the joystick apparatus that controls the wheelchair. Tom looks with horror at Witherton, who is equally terrified. I don't have a heartbeat, Witherton. Tom lunges, reaching for Witherton in desperation, as if needing Witherton to rescue him. 
Witherton cries out in anguish as the assumingly dead Tom grabs onto him. Oh God, not a ghost, not the dead, get off! Witherton screams as he writhes in on himself in anguish, using his shoulders to boot Tom off of him, sending him falling to the floor, banging his head against the side of the desk as he does. Witherton, panting, tries to back up his wheelchair to get away from the two confirmed ghosts, but can't because the wheels are blocked by the crook of the door and the wall. Witherton slaps himself in the face. Stop it! Witherton commands himself with a spastic yell. Witherton slows his breathing, looking at young Lacey who is sprawled out on the top of the desk, slowly murmuring, coming back to consciousness. Slowly, Witherton forces himself to turn and face Tom, who is having a panic attack. Oh God, what is this? Tom cries. Witherton looks directly at the AED life-saving device that jumpstarts your heart when having a cardiac event. What if I were to use that on Tom? Witherton thinks with mischievous intrigue. Tom looks over to see Witherton staring at the red two-inch box and immediately bends down to grab it off of the floor in front of Witherton. Tom, I, 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 I think whatever's working is working. Best not to ask until it stops working. Now we are dealing with something completely out of nature here. Tom drops the AED device, rushing to his daughter, feeling her chest and wrist for a heartbeat and pulse. Tom shakes his head. Tell me everything you know about me and Lacey, my daughter. You and your daughter were dead. I processed and inspected the two of you bluebirds myself. The two of you were stopped in deadlock traffic on Sunset Boulevard and had an accident. What accident? How do you get killed in a car that is basically parked? Tom asks, getting angered by his lack of memory and deepening confusion. You pulled out suddenly into a middle turning lane in a f f Ferrari speeding by unexpectedly. Well, that's what they said. Tom desperately tries to remember but can't. You were, you were killed instantly. Your brain suffered multiple hematoma from the impact of the glass that slammed against your head when the Ferrari hit your BMW. There is an awkward silence filling the room. <laughs> Physics, Witherton says with a nervous laugh, flexing his hands out like, What are you going to do about it? It's the law of science. Tom looks to Lacey, who is peering through the slits of her eyes, back at he and Witherton. And what about her? Tom asks Witherton. She died on the way to the hospital. Her neck was snapped by the deploying of the passenger airbag when the accident happened. It happens more often than you would think. I've had... Seven total deceased children due to improper seating of a child in the airbag deployable areas. When they moved her into the ambulance, it separated a section of her vertebrae that regulates breathing. She died of suffocation. Even though Tom still can't remember Lacey as his daughter, he winces at the terrible thought of her choking to death on nothing more than severed bodily electrical signals. Tom looks at his hands ferociously as if fighting back against the terror of being alive, but not. He flexes his hands back and forth, turning round toward Witherton as he does. Witherton, I can feel, damn it. I have feeling. Right now, I can feel all of the tiny electrical signals firing back up in my body again. Witherton looks to Lacey, who is sitting up as if drugged and drunk, her eyes still wincing, peering through the slits of her eyes. It would appear that to be the same case for your reanimated daughter, Witherton says with a wondrous smile. He is actually getting excited by all of this strangeness. Never in his life has he experienced anything remotely fantastic or supernatural. He had always wished to not have a speech disability and use of his legs, but this is making him forget all of that. He feels swept away by the excitement of it all. 
Why haven't the other bodies come back to life? Why is it just me and her? Tom asks, desperate for answers no one knows the answers to. I don't think we're going to find any answers down here, Mr. Spiegel. Tom, in a moment of obvious self-realization, puts his hands on his hips, still stabilizing his stance from the druzy effects of being dead and coming back to life. Tom moves, walking with a more immediate shuffle this time toward the elevator. He looks inside the half-opened elevator, pushing the elevator button as he does. Nothing happens. Is it normal for the elevator to be this way, Witherton? Witherton's wheelchair sputters out of the office, resting to a halt next to Tom. Not at all, Witherton responds. Is there a staircase out of here, Tom asks. Suddenly, a fire alarm begins to ring out, making the three of them jump. Daddy! Lacey cries out to her mindfully illegitimate father. Tom runs to Lacey, grabbing her, picking her up. Suddenly, Tom has a flash of memory where he sees Lacey as an infant feeding from the breast of his estranged wife. Then another memory. Then another. And another. Suddenly, it all comes back to him. He holds up Lacey in front of him, celebrating the return of his mind. I remember, Lacey. I remember, Tom says with tears filling his eyes, bursting their water dams falling down the smooth roughness of his reanimated cheeks. You remember what, Daddy? Lacey asks, as if dealing with a hangover migraine. You, silly, Tom says, holding his daughter tight. Lacey pulls back and peers at her father for a long moment, and then begins to smile. Oh, Daddy, you're silly, she giggles. Tom kisses her cheek. You give bountiful meaning to my life, Lacey. I love you. I love you too, Daddy. Please don't yell, my head hurts. Tom Joyous turns to see Witherton slumped over in his chair, decomposing. Lacey shrieks. Daddy, what happened to that man? She demands to know. Tom is just as shocked as she is. He doesn't waste time looking for answers. He just runs. He runs toward the morgue, past it desperately fighting to stay reanimated with his daughter, no matter how long and hard he has to run to get to their safety, which he feels is at the top of the staircase they have now entered. Running and running, Tom flees up the flight of stairs as the alarms ring out and ring and ring in his ears, deafening the two of them. Finally, he gets to the top of the stairs and kicks open the door to reveal the bright, hot sun of life on the surface. At 3.31 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, a radiological event of unknown origin occurred. All telecommunications have ceased to operate. Phones have ceased to function. Radical-scaled mass death events have occurred. As of now, no one has an answer as to the cause or reason for this surprise event, what some have called the attack. For Tom and his daughter, it was their breakout.